You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, Stonegate. Well, today it begins. First Corinthians. Yep. We are about to spend the next six months or so uh, just slowly working through this book together, sort of verse by verse and chapter by chapter uh, until we get to the end of this uh, letter. Now, I wanted to start, though, by giving you three reasons why we are spending the next six months in this particular book. Why 1 Corinthians? Uh, let me give you three reasons why. Number one, 1 Corinthians helps us see Jesus in everything. And we all need help in seeing Jesus in everything. And this book gives the help that we need. Uh, let me take that word everything for a moment. Uh, the letter to the church in Corinth covers a whole lot of terrain. Let me just give you a sampling of what's sort of in front of us. Uh, you've got things like church division, things like church discipline, lawsuits in the church, sexual immorality in the church, money, singleness, marriage, divorce, remarriage, roles within marriage, the right use of rights, uh, idolatry, temptation, church services, spiritual gifts, communion, love, the resurrection. We could just keep going. I mean, there is a lot of terrain in these 16 chapters that make up this letter. Uh, it, it led one commentator to, I think, rightly say that this is the most wide-ranging and complete of Paul's letters. He is just covering so many different areas of our life. And this is the thing that I love about the letter. Uh, Paul helps us see Jesus in all of those things, in everything in our life. Uh, think about 1 Corinthians like this. Uh, think about it being inside of a frame. Uh, the letter starts by Paul introducing us to the cross of Christ. That's the start of the letter, the opener. Then you get the close. In the close, you get the resurrection. That's chapter 15. So you get the cross, the resurrection. That's the frame for the letter of 1 Corinthians. Then everything else, all of this terrain, all of these topics that we're going to be exposed to, all of those fit within the frame. Paul is saying, let me, let me help you see how the cross and resurrection of Jesus apply to every one of those things. And I love that because we do need help in seeing these things. We uh, sort of innately have a faulty way of thinking about our life. And he here's that faulty way of thinking. Uh, we, we often think wrongly like this. Uh, so I go to church on Sunday and that's where I think about Jesus. Uh, and then Monday happens, I put Jesus over here and I get about my work week. And then... Sunday rolls around again, I pick Jesus back up, I, I think about him some more, and then Monday hits, I put him over there, and again, I just go about the, the week that is. It's that way of thinking, and Paul's like, no, I want you to see the entirety of your life fitting within the frame. I want you to see how Jesus' cross, Jesus' resurrection applies to every single component of your life. 1 Corinthians helps us see Jesus in everything. Second reason for this letter. 1 Corinthians summarizes Christianity's central themes. This letter is rich in theology. And here's what I really like about 1 Corinthians. Uh, it packs that theology into short, pithy sentences. So that, that's what you can expect. In other of Paul's letters, uh, it might take Paul like chapters to develop a long argument to address a thing. That's not what you get in 1 Corinthians. Uh, you get these short, pithy, rich theological sentences throughout uh, this letter. Let me just give you a, a sense of that. 
uh, we get a theology of the cross. It comes to us like this. We preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 1, 23. Get a theology of grace. What do you have that you did not receive? There's grace for you, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. We get a theology of God. There is one God, the Father, from whom all things came and from whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 8, 6. We get a theology of the Christian life. You are not your own. It's like one of the things we all have to reckon with when we uh, walk into a relationship with Jesus. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, 1 Corinthians 6.20. We get a theology of mission. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some, 1 Corinthians 9.22. We get a theology of love. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. We get a theology of the gospel, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. We get a theology of hope, of hope. We all need hope in our life. We get a theology of hope. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. So you've got all of this theology packed in these powerful sentences, pithy, profound, memorizable sentences. And one of the just practical things I would encourage you to do, you could even do this this week, is to read through 1 Corinthians and highlight every verse that you would want to memorize over the next six months. And as we're working through this, just take one of those verses a week and just begin to memorize these short, concise theological statements that you get in this particular letter. And if you would give yourself to this, to, to read the book of 1 Corinthians, to study it with us, to memorize parts and pieces of it, you will come out on the other side enriched theologically. And I would love that for you. We wake up in August, and for you to, to be more well-rounded in your theology, that would be a great thing for you. Third reason why. 1 Corinthians addresses a church tempted to compromise. Now, this, this for me might even be at the top of the list for us today. It is addressing a church that is tempted to compromise. Starts like this. 1-1, uh, one, one. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. So uh, we get a little bit of the background in the book of Acts. Uh, we know that Paul planted this church on his second missionary journey. He shows up in Corinth, he starts preaching Jesus, and it is hard work. It's not easy in Corinth. It is dangerous work. It's not safe in Corinth. It, it's all of that coming at you if you're going to be preaching Jesus in Corinth. There was opposition everywhere for Paul. And Jesus shows up in a vision to Paul, and Jesus says some things to Paul that he needed to hear. In Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10, Jesus says this to Paul, do not be afraid, Paul, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now, why? Here's the assurance Jesus gives him, for I am with you. That's why, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, and he, he goes on, for I have many in this city who are my people. I love that encouragement. That's encouragement that every church planter needs, that, that encouragement right there. Jesus comes to Paul and says, Paul, uh, you don't need to be afraid. And here's why. Paul, I'm with you. I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to protect you. 
I, I am with you, Paul. And then I love, he goes on to say, and, and brother, pa Paul, I have some people in this city, they don't know it yet, but they're about to get saved. I, I have some people here, I'm about to ambush them. I'm about to track them down in their sin and I'm about to rescue them from their sin. I'm about to bring them into my family called the church. Right? I'm about to open up this bright new future for them, Paul. It's going down. I have many in this city. You keep preaching, I'm gonna be doing some saving around here. And Paul kept preaching. He stayed in Corinth for 18 months, faithfully preaching Jesus. Jesus faithfully saved and a church was planted. And then as Paul so often does, he raised up leaders for the church in Corinth and then he left to go start other works in other places. And now a few years later, Paul writes back to this church that he planted. That's where you pick it up in uh, 1 Corinthians 1.1. 1, 1. It's several years later, he's writing back to this church and here is what he is addressing. He is addressing a church where compromise had crept in compromise had crept into this church. Now put yourself into the shoes of these Christians in Corinth. You are a marginalized group of people. Uh, you wouldn't miss it far if you were thinking in your head when you think about the church that's in Corinth, if you thought um, a church of about 100 people probably, something like that, in a city of about 50,000 people. Uh, but this city was a Jesus-hating city. They disagreed with what Jesus thought and they didn't want people teaching that sort of thing around here. That's the city that you're in. They were a marginalized, small group of people in a city of roughly 50,000 people. And if you put yourself in their shoes, you would be tempted like them to compromise. If we can just bend these things right here, this will be so much more palatable to the people in Corinth. If we could just bend these little truths right here, uh, we might could go from a marginalized group of people to someone that's kind of on the ends of the city. You can see how tempting that way of seeing would be, compromise. That, that is a temptation that's not unique to the church then in Corinth. Compromise is a temptation for every church in every generation. There is a constant pull on the church to take a little bit of the Bible, to take a little bit of culture, throw them in a blender and see what comes out. That, that is a temptation in every church, in every generation. Friend, you don't have to look far to find churches, whole denominations, blending a little bit of Bible with a little bit of culture in hopes of making um, things that our, our culture just doesn't really like a little more palatable. Um, trying to make uh, the Bible's view on sexual ethics just a little more palatable. The Bible's view on gender, a little more palatable. The Bible's view of marriage, a little more palatable. The Bible's view on the exclusivity of Jesus, a little more palatable. Blending Bible culture in, in hopes of going from marginalized to in. The culture actually likes us now. And Jesus, through this letter, is looking at his church and saying, no, do not do it. No, church. Jesus is looking at his church and just reminding his church that a church cannot look like the world. A church should not look like the world. And when a church looks like the world, they have nothing left to offer the world. Can we just sort of receive that from the Lord? You ought to look different. You ought to be a little bit different. And it's by being different than you actually have something to offer a world who needs some help. 
1 Corinthians is a help to every Christian, to every church resisting compromise, who is seeking to walk in convictional faithfulness, seeking to stand with Jesus wherever Jesus draws the line. So that's why we're, we're digging into this particular book. That's why we're going to study this book for the next six months. This is some of the terrain that's out in front of us. And now I want to go to our text this morning. We have the greeting this morning, the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians. Now, when you, uh, you just heard the greeting read, and uh, when you heard that read, here is one of the things to observe in the greeting. There, there are no commands to obey in the greeting. Paul doesn't look at the church and in the greeting say, hey, church, do this. Hey, church, don't do that. He doesn't give them imperatives. There, there are no commands to obey in the greeting. But there is a model to follow. There is a model to imitate. And the Bible is uh, it's pro finding imitatable people and then following them, becoming more like them. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul looks at the Corinthian church and says, Hey, church, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. So as long as you're finding models that are imitating Jesus, the Bible's like, yep, follow that person right there. Look, look more like that person right there because if you look more like them, you're gonna look more like Jesus. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's Paul in 1 Corinthians 11. And this is what we're seeing in this particular text. Now, what is it here that, that, that Paul is modeling for us? What is he showing us here? And here's the way I wanna say it. Paul is practicing affirmation. I'm stealing those two words, practicing affirmation, from a book by Sam Crabtree. I would commend it to you. That's the title of the book, and it's so good. Every parent in here should read that. Anybody who wants to grow as a friend should read it, practicing affirmation. Paul practices affirmation, and this text is inviting us to follow Paul as he is imitating Christ. It's inviting us, like Paul, to practice affirmation. Let me show you what I mean when I say Paul practices affirmation. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 4. Paul says this. He looks at the Corinthian church and he says, I give thanks to my God always for you, Corinthian church, because of the grace of God that was given you, the Corinthian church, it was given you in Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know what your heart does when you read uh, verse 4. I'll tell you what my heart does when I read verse 4. I, it makes me want to stop and marvel because I'm a little, it's not what I'm expecting. It's a surprising verse for me to read. Paul says again, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you, the, the church in Corinth. And, and here is what makes it so shocking. Verse four, it was by far the most messed up church in the New Testament. I mean, th this church it needed a lot of help. It needed a lot of work. It needed a lot of correction. Let me just give you a sampling of, of some of the problems going on. Uh, this church, the Corinthian church, was a divided church. Uh, this church loved the celebrity pastor thing, man. They were all about that. So you had team Paul and you had team Apollos. And they are in the octagon just going to war over what team's going to win. Uh, they, they were a divided church. Uh, they were a church that was behind schedule in their growth. Uh, they're behind schedule. So in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Church, I can't even address you as spiritual people. I have to address you as people of the flesh because you are still little infants, little babies in Jesus. Paul is looking at them and saying, Church, 
you are like a two-year-old adult. That, that, that's, that's where you are in your Christ-likeness. You, you are behind schedule. You should be here in your Christ-likeness, but you're all the way back here in diapers, church. That's the church in Corinth. Uh, this particular church uh, was tolerating high-handed sexual sin. A dude had a thing for a stepmom. That, that's what's going on in Corinth. And uh, rather than confronting that, this church was content with it. I, what, what's the problem? Two, two consenting adults, what, what, what's, what's the deal? And, and Paul's like, are we serious? What, what's the deal here? Uh, that's this church. Uh, this church uh, was lawsuit happy. Everybody was suing everybody around there. That's the church in Corinth. Uh, this church had lost their sexual integrity. There's all kinds of sexual sin going on prostitution's going on. I mean, they had all sorts of high-handed sexual sin happening inside the church. Individualism was just sort of the law of the land. Hey, what I'm entitled to, that's what I'm going to do. What I want to do, when I want to do it, that's, that's what I, I don't care what you need. I don't care what you want. What I want, that's what's going to win. That, that's the church in Corinth. Uh, this church had messed up worship services. I mean, if you were to go to this church on a Sunday morning, you'd be like, man, I might want to go to the church in the next city over. Uh, they were abusing spiritual gifts like crazy. They're, they're taking communion. I mean, just think about this. They're taking communion together, and they're drunk. They're, they're getting drunk on the communion wine. I mean, that's a messed up church, isn't it? I mean, we got some problems going on in Corinth. And to make all of it worse, there was serious theological drift happening. They had a whole contingent in this particular church that uh, was denying uh, that Jesus had risen from the dead. I mean, that's, a, that's not a small error. That's not a small theological, uh, you know, thing here, right? Th this is the church in Corinth. This is a messed up church. And to that messed up church, Paul looks at them and he practices affirmation. I give thanks to my God always for you, messed up church, for you, because of the grace of God that was given you, Corinthian church. What does it mean to practice affirmation? Let me just give you a working definition. Practicing affirmation is seeing the grace of God at work in another's life, then saying what you see. That is what it means to practice affirmation. It's seeing the grace of God at work in another's life, then communicating that to them. It's saying what you see in their life. Now, here's like a fundamental assumption that we all need to carry when we're just walking around our brothers and sisters here. Here's the fundamental assumptions. Number one, uh, Jesus lives in them, therefore is at work in them, right? Amen? So, so Jesus lives in your brothers and sisters in your church family. And, and because he lives in them, he's at work in them. Second assumption, that we get the privilege of serving others by saying to them the, the work that we see in them. Right? This is just fundamental 101, just relating to people in a church family. Right? Jesus is in them, he's at work in them. We get the chance to serve them by saying to them what we see God doing in them. Now, this gives us a chance to distinguish between affirmation and flattery, okay? So flattery, what, what is flattery? Flattery is saying something that you do not see, right? It, it's telling a lie. It's, it's acting like you see it in them, but you don't see it, and then you say it to them. That, that's flattery. It, it's saying something you do not see. 
Affirmation, on the other hand, is seeing the grace of God at work in another's life, then saying what, what it is that you actually see. Flattery is telling a lie. Affirmation is telling the truth. Affirmation is using words in a worthy way, in alignment with their intended purpose to build up, to strengthen, to refresh, to encourage, to impart grace. You can see if you agree with this statement. The longer I've been in ministry, the more I believe this is true, that you will never meet a person too affirmed or too encouraged. Now, you can meet a person too flattered. You can meet a person that is undercorrected. You can meet a person that hard truths have been withheld for them, from them from way too long. You can do all of that. But I don't think you will ever meet a person who is under-affirmed. Or I'm sorry, over-affirmed. Over-encouraged. I, I don't think you're going to meet that person. And, and just on a really practical level, can, can I just encourage you in this way? If you want to become a more life-giving person, a more refreshing person to be around. And I, I think on some level, we all want that, right? I, I doubt any of you came in today thinking, you know what I really want to become? A black hole. I just suck the life out of everybody. How can I be more of that? I, I don't think anybody came in thinking like that. I think a lot of us have something in us. It's like, I, I would like to, to refresh people more often. I would like to be more life-giving in these ways. And if you want to be more life-giving, more refreshing, see the grace of God at work in another's life, then say what you see. If you want to become a more influential person, a more impactful person in other people's lives, then see the grace of God at work in another's life and say what you see. I, I love to ask people to name the one or two most influential people in their life and just listen to them talk about what it is that made them influential and all the things. And one of the things you will almost always find is about those one or two people that have been the most influential is that they were some of the most affirming and encouraging people in their life. They were people who practice affirmation. It gains you a hearing in another person's life. It opens their heart to you where they want to listen to you. If you want to be more influential, practice affirmation. I was just thinking last night, we gathered our family around and we were just thinking about uh, how affirmation has worked in our life. And I, I would just tell you, it has changed my life. Absolutely changed my life. Um, I would not be in ministry apart from my student minister practicing affirmation. By, by saying the grace of God that he saw in me. I would never have planted a church apart from Randy, my former pastor, practicing affirmation, seeing the grace of God at work in me and naming it, saying what he saw. I would, we would not be doing this this morning in this room apart from him doing that. It's literally changed the course of my life. If you want to be more influential, practice affirmation. If you want to be more like Paul as he imitates Jesus, then see the grace of God at work in another's life and then say what you see. Now, I want to make that connection clear. This is not me saying just be like Paul. This is me saying be like Paul as he is like Jesus. This is what Jesus is like. And some of us just need to be recalibrated to that because when we think of God, we think of someone who is stingy with encouragement, 
stingy with affirmation, always looking for us to, to fail, always obsessing about our flaws, that is not God. He is obsessing about your wins and, you, and your successes. Uh, there is a, uh, a not a very well-known Puritan pastor. His name was Christopher Love. And uh, I love how he describes God. This is, what I'm about to read is true in the scriptures. And listen to how he describes God. He says, God exactly takes notice of, tenderly cherishes, and graciously rewards the least beginnings and the smallest measures of grace in the hearts of his people. Thank God we have a God like that. God exactly, to, to the T, exactly takes notice of. He tenderly cherishes and graciously rewards the least beginnings, the smallest measures. Uh, God is like that parent of a one-year-old. And that one-year-old is learning to walk. And uh, he, he takes that first wobbly step and he falls down. And the parent doesn't scold him for not being able to run, does he? No, he looks at him and just affirms the mess out of that one step. Just the smallest measure, right? That is, that is God in your life. Affirming and encouraging all of those little small steps, small measures of grace at work in you. And if you want to be more like God, then practice affirmation like God. Encourage like God. Let me just apply this in a few ways uh, really briefly. Uh, think about it in your marriage. Affirmation is critical in your marriage. It, um, it has a way of refreshing the culture of your marriage. Sam Crabtree, in Practicing Affirmation, uh, he, he talks about, you know, he's a pastor, so he's been, he spent 30, 40 years of his life around people in ministry, in their marriages. And, and listen to what he says in that book. He says, I've never seen a marriage fall apart, fail, or end up in divorce who practice affirmation. Who practice affirmation. If you're married, when is the last time you've looked your spouse in the eyeballs and you have thought about the ways you see the grace of God at work in them, and you've said it to them. Just refresh them by it. Encourage them with it. Bless them with those words. In your parenting, you know, a, a huge part of parenting is correction. Uh, it just, it just kind of goes along with it, doesn't it? I mean, you're, you're trying to help your kids grow up, and a kid needs a lot of correction along the way uh, to grow up well. But parents, hear what I'm about to say. If you give all correction without commendation, you will crush your kids. If it is all correction without loads and loads and loads of commendation, affirmation, you will crush the soul of your kid. You'll lose a hearing in the heart of your kid. Uh, in a lot of ways, what commendation or affirmation does is build a platform for correction. You give all of this commentation and, and affirmation, and now you have a voice to be able to speak hard things into your kid's life as needed. Right? But, but 
commendation, affirmation, it's critical in your parenting. Every parent should make it your goal to be the most affirming voice in the life of your child. To just find ways all the time that you can practice affirmation. Affirmation is critical in friendship. It it makes you easy to be around. It makes you life-giving to be around. It, It makes it possible to say hard things in a friendship when necessary. It just, practicing affirmation is one simple way for you to grow into a better friend. And affirmation is also crucial in the life of a church. You cannot have a healthy church culture apart from a church full of people practicing affirmation. So do we want to be a healthy church? If so, we want a healthy culture? If so, then we all have to learn how to do this well, how to practice affirmation. So uh, let me just uh, play the, the game with you. You pick the church you want to go to, okay? Here's church number one. Church number one has a hypercritical spirit. I mean, they're just like, how can we find and then point out the flaws of other people? Let's just kind of obsess and major on on doing that. It's a hypercritical church. It's a church where the deficiencies of others are obsessed about. It's a church where all of my grievances have to be aired. Hot takes have to be expressed. Harsh opinions have to be given. Critical church. Or a church like this. Uh, A church that is always just trying to catch you doing something that looks a little bit like Jesus. I mean, they're just trying to find you doing some of that. And when they find you doing that, they let you know about it and they let other people know about it. Now, you just ask yourself the question, which one of those two churches do you want to be a part of? I mean, I'll take church number two, right? I mean, church number one sounds terrible. Church number two sounds life-giving, encouraging, refreshing. It sounds like a place that a person like you and I could actually grow up in. It's critical to a church. Now, here's the way I want to end. We're going to spend our last couple of minutes. I want to show you in this text, just really briefly, three things that shaped Paul's heart in such a way where he could see through the mess of this church, what this church needed to work on, so that he could see through that all the way to Jesus' work in their life. I want to just show you a couple of things that that help Paul see the grace of God in this messy church. Here's the first. Paul saw the start of Jesus's work, the start of Jesus's work. Uh, You find that word called three times in this text. You see it in verse one, Paul applies it to himself. I I was called as an apostle, Paul says. And then in verse two and verse nine, he applies it to the church. You, church, Corinthian church were called. Um, That word called, is a word that reminds us of God's gracious initiative in salvation. That that if you're a Christian, the most fundamental thing we could say about it is it's because of God's gracious initiative in your life. That word called is reminding us of that. And that reminder of God's gracious initiative is so important that that word called became shorthand in the New Testament for Christian. So what is a Christian in the New Testament? Well, it's a called one. Uh, what's a called one in the New Testament? Well, it's a Christian. Those two just became linked together, shorthand for one another. That's how important it is. A Christian is a person who has been called by Jesus, called into a relationship by Jesus, been called into his family by Jesus, been called into a new identity, right? He calls them saint in this text by Jesus. Right? It's just that reminder of God's initiating work. This is how Paul saw this messed up church. 
Now look around this room for a moment. Just look at some of the faces. Just take, take note of some of the faces that you see here. Can you see through the mess of those people that you're looking at right now, can you see through the mess of their lives to God's starting work in their life, to God's gracious initiative in their life? Because th this is how God sees them. God sees them as a person that he set his affection upon, that he called, that he saved from their sins, that he rescued, that he adopted, that he brought into to his people, the church. That's how, that's how Jesus sees them. And the more you see Jesus' starting work in their life, the more you'll be able to see through their messiness to the grace of God at work in their life. Paul saw the start of Jesus' work. He saw the middle of Jesus' work. Look at verse 5 and 6 and 7. That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking, present tense, you are not lacking in any gift as you wait, present tense, for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't just see these people in the, sort of the lens of what Jesus did, but, but he also sees what Jesus is doing currently in their life. He is writing to the spiritual gift abusers, right? And he's saying, I can see in you, the, these gifts are alive and working, he, he sees the work of God in their life. To this crazy church, he, he's looking at them and saying, hey, I can see that your life testifies to the reality of Jesus. I, I can see that you are waiting on Jesus to come back. He sees the, the present work of God in their life. He, he sees through their current deficiencies to what Jesus is currently doing in them. Man, I want to be more like that. Have you noticed this tendency to obsess about people's flaws? That's, that's in us. And Paul reminds us it doesn't have to stay in us. We can actually be people looking through those flaws all the way to the work of Jesus in their life. Here's one of the reasons why it's so important across the church family. Most people live unaware of how Jesus is at work in them. What Jesus is up to in them. They just, they just can't see it. It's like growing, right? It's like if you're the one growing, it's hard to see day by day that you're growing. You need people to pull out a ruler every now and then to help you see that you've grown. And in the same way, people have a hard time seeing their growth in Jesus. I agree with one author when he says, too many Christians are more readily aware of the absence of God than they are of the presence of God. They are more aware of their sin than they are of his grace. That's true. Now think about what you get to do in a human being's life, in another's life. Jesus has given you the ability to see what's invisible to them. Then to say it to them so that they can then see it. You've been given the privilege of doing that. And I wish we had time to talk about the many ways that we could do that. As people are walking through suffering, as people are waiting on the Lord in their life. There's just hundreds and hundreds of ways that we could get about doing that. Uh, but if you want a primer, maybe you could think about it this way. Uh, be uh, very familiar with two lists in the Bible. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit, so Galatians 5, fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, right? You've got these gifts of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit. Be, be very aware of those two lists and then just be on the lookout. 
And every time you see those things popping up and, and, and showing themselves in another's life, say it to them. Encourage them. Affirm it. Practice affirmation in their life. Paul could see the middle of Jesus' work, but that's not all he saw. He saw the start, saw the middle, and he saw the end of Jesus' work. He sees through their current deficiencies and flaws all the way to what Jesus would eventually do in their life. He assures the church that Jesus, in verse 8, will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has so much confidence for their collective future. It reminds me of what he says to the church in Philippi in uh, Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. What Jesus started, Paul knows he will finish. And again, I just want you to look around this room for a second. Just look around. Get those, some of those faces in your, in your mind. These people, your brothers and sisters in this room, their best days are not behind them, but before them. C.S. Lewis describes what Jesus will one day make every follower of Jesus uh, like this. He says, Jesus will make the feeblest and the filthy of a, filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature. This is what's coming for you. Pulsating all through with energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. This is what we're in for, nothing less. That, that's what's happening to every, every follower of Jesus, your church family, that's what's in their future. He goes on to say that if you could see now what your fellow follower of Jesus will one, ba- one day be, you would be tempted to fall down and worship at their feet. That's what's coming for them. So church, can, can we see through the flaws in, in this present life? F- flaws of the people here, flaws of our church family at large. Can we, can we see through the flaws all the way to what Jesus will one day make us? And if we can, you know what it's going to allow you to do? Practice a lot more affirmation right now. And isn't that the type of church you want to be in? It's the type of church I want to be in. So so church, may we imitate Paul as he imitates Jesus. Amen. Why don't you bow with me? And I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that would not be helpful for you this morning. And this is your chance to respond to Jesus. What's he asking of you? What's he want of you? friend, whatever that is, would you just have the courage to say yes to him? This text is inviting us to practice affirmation. Our marriages, parenting, friendships, the life of our church. We would come every week with our eyes up to Jesus, just beholding him, And then our eyes would be out on our church family, finding ways to affirm and encourage them. And maybe your next step today is to take that decisive step toward Jesus where you hold up your life and you ask him to rescue you, where you put your faith in the person and work of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. 
you hold your life up to God and, and you ask God to, to save you. If so, you can just call out to him in the best way you know how, right where you are. So Father, would you come now and minister the good news of Jesus to us? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen.